Look with me at the 8th chapter of Romans. We're going to begin a new section in Romans this morning. We're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. This passage is probably the premier passage describing the life, the ministry, the work of the Holy Spirit. Up to this point in the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit has been mentioned only one time, amazingly. In the whole first seven chapters, Paul has talked about the Holy Spirit once, that is chapter 5, verse 5, when he has said that, this, that God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And by contrast, in this chapter, chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned over 20 times. This is his chapter. Describes his work. What he does. In the first several verses, we're going to begin to see um, the first elements of life in the Spirit. And the life in the Spirit is going to confirm what Paul says to us in the very first chapter, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. The whole chapter is dedicated to confirming that one truth, that to Christ, those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And in fact, at the end of the chapter, he reaffirms that when he appeals to God as being the highest judge, the final court of appeal, and if God doesn't condemn, then who can? And so the whole emphasis of this passage is to give us insight into what it means to walk in the Spirit, life in the Spirit. Now, before we look at it, I want you to turn with me to chapter 19 of the book of Acts. There's an interesting encounter here recorded by Luke that will give us some background and some perspective, I think, that is important. Toward the end of the 18th chapter, in verse 24, Luke records that a, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, had come to Ephesus. And he was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. And so a fellow by the name of Apollos was teaching in Ephesus. Now apparently there's some, some missing parts in his theology about Christ. Though he teaches accurately about Jesus, there's some things that are apparently missing. He leaves Ephesus, he goes to Corinth. Following upon his heels is Paul who arrives at Ephesus. And that's where we pick up in chapter 19. We're told that Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. Now he's not very uh, descriptive. We're not given much more information. There's just some disciples. We're not told whose disciples or uh, anything like that. He just found some disciples. And he asks them this question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now I puzzled over that for a long time until a while back, and let me tell you what I think, why he answered that question, and it has a bearing on our conversation this morning. 
I encounter people all the time who profess to be Christians, but there is some doubt in my mind as to whether or not they really are Christians. Now, a Christian, by definition, is a person who's born again, who has the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Would you agree with me? That's a biblical view of a Christian, New Testament view of a Christian. Now, there's lots and lots of people who don't read the Bible, who identify themselves with Christianity, who've been raised in a religious home of some sort, and have this sense about them that they are Christian, when in fact, they very really possibly are not, in the classic definition and understanding of a Christian. Now, as I interact with people almost daily, I'm asking people questions like, are you interested in spiritual things? <laughs> what do you believe about Jesus? Would you like to know more about him? I'm asking all kinds of varieties of questions just to try to find out where the Holy Spirit is working and, and to find an open door. And people will come back and, and their response will be, oh, oh well, well, I'm a Christian. I say, oh, wonderful. Where do you fellowship? Where do I what? <laughs> oh, where do you go to church? Oh, oh, well, I go to this church or that church when I go. <laughs> I say, oh, what's your favorite book in the Bible? What? <laughs> what's your favorite book in the Bible? Um, well, um, I, uh, I don't know. I don't have a favorite book in the Bible. I said, oh. And in the midst of our conversation, it becomes apparent to me that we're not clicking together. That we're missing somewhere. The thought occurs to me, hmm, maybe this person is not born again. They're what I would term a cultural Christian. And so I see, now this is my interpretation of this passage in Acts, I see the same thing happening. I see Paul arriving at Ephesus, interacting with some people who profess to be believers of some sort. They've been taught about Jesus. Doesn't say they know him. They've been taught about him by Apollos. Which leads Paul to wonder, probably, hey, maybe these guys aren't Christians. What is the one reality to Christianity. What's the one thing that makes a person a Christian? The Holy Spirit. Maybe they've not received the Holy Spirit. So he asks them that question. He said, did you, let me ask you a question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And look at the response. No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? Paul examines a little further, and he says to them, well, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul goes on, and he says, well, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And apparently he preaches the gospel to them, shares the gospel. Luke says, on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were 12 men in all. A Christian is one who has the Holy Spirit. We'll see this in this passage. The question for us, the question we want to ask ourselves is the very same question that Paul asks the Ephesians 
Did I receive the Holy Spirit when I believed, and how can I be sure? How do I know? Paul will tell us in the 8th chapter. We can confirm it. We can know it beyond any shadow of a doubt. Read with me the first 11 verses of this chapter. Paul says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. And those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God, what? Lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, and yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Now let's look at this passage for a moment. The very first word is the word therefore. One of Paul's favorite words. He loves that word. He has a very logical, very rational mind. If you read his letters, you see the word therefore pop up at regular intervals. He establishes some truth. And then he draws his conclusion. And in between the two, always pops up the word therefore. This word therefore is critical to an understanding of the whole chapter. It marks a turning point. Therefore, he says based on, it points back to what he's already told us in the previous chapters. In chapter 3, he said we've been justified by faith. We've been right with, made right with God by faith. In chapter 5, he says, because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. In chapter 6, he says that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we've been united to Christ. In chapter 7, he reaffirms the fact that we've been united with Christ, and he tells us that we've been released from the law. He says, because of that, therefore, if you don't memorize any verse in the Bible, memorize chapter 8, verse 1. He says, therefore, there is now only an itty-bitty amount of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that what it says? It doesn't say that? What does it say? There's no condemnation, is there? Is condemnation one of your favorite things? It must be. We dwell in it so much. I mean, there's so much condemnation going on, it's ridiculous. 
And please don't misunderstand or think that when the Holy Spirit is convicting you that, that you're being condemned. Periodically I'll get a letter and someone says, well, you know, I sure felt condemned by what you had to say. And I have to write back and I said, no, I think you felt convicted by what I had to say. But you know, the church is notorious for condemnation. We condemn ourselves, we condemn one another, we're constantly critical and judging one another, aren't we? Putting people down. Credible. Paul reminds us that if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. If God's not condemning, who else can condemn? No condemnation, not even a little tiny bit. Isn't that glorious? None. None. Now, who's the no condemnation for? Who? Those in Christ. Significant element, right? Those in Christ. Did you ever think about any other religion? There's, there's something really distinctive about Christianity. Other religions uh, in the world and historically, they follow somebody, don't they? They follow a religious leader. But none of them say that they are in that leader. Those who follow Islam do not say, I am in Muhammad. They don't even say they're in God. Those who follow after Buddha do not say, I am in Buddha. Those who follow after Sun Young Moon do not say, I am in Sun Young Moon. But those who follow after Christ say what? I am in Christ. What does that mean, in Christ? Oh, I wish we had. We could talk about being in Christ for hours, let me tell you. Those two words, in Christ, are so rich, we could never exhaust those two words, that whole concept, that whole reality. I'm in Christ. I'm in a vital, living, personal, real union with Jesus Christ. He is alive, and I have been made part of Him. I am intimately hidden in Him and in His life. Our words are so inadequate to express and to picture the reality. My words are so inadequate to express the reality of what those two words say. In Christ. There is no condemnation. There was all kinds of condemnation before, wasn't there? He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. To appreciate, I think, the reality of no condemnation, you have to understand condemnation. You have to be able to appreciate what condemnation is all about before you can appreciate having no condemnation. Think about it with me for a moment. What's the ultimate in terms of condemnation? Paul talks about it in chapter 5, because of the sin of one man, Adam, all men have been condemned. What is condemnation all about? Well, ultimately speaking, it's hell. A simple four-letter word. What's hell all about? Let's talk about it for a minute. The possibilities of what hell might be all about. Being consigned there forever. 
Do we get glimpses, you think, of hell in this life? I think so. Do we get glimpses of heaven? I think so. I think most of us, if you're a Christian, you've, you've experienced moments of ecstatic joy, unbelievable joy. And they're just glimpses, aren't they? They just flash by. And, and they're so elusive, you want to hold on to them and make them last, but they can't. They just create in you a greater hunger and appetite for glory, don't they? Sure. I think the same way we experience those, we experience, I think, glimpses of hell. Some of you have experienced terrific loss in your life. Loss of a loved one, gone through a divorce, or someone close to you has died. Someone upon whom you have been very dependent, very attached. They have meant a tremendous amount to you in your life, and now they're no longer there. And in your life is a giant hole. I know what that's like. I've experienced this giant hole in, the, in my midsection, this emptiness that nothing can fill, that only causes me to cry in agony. Some of you experience despair, grief, aloneness, to such a degree that the personal pain from that state of being was absolutely intolerable, and from your point of view, you had just wished you had the courage to commit suicide. There are some people right here in this service this morning who have seriously considered suicide as an alternative to the pain of their life, but they've not had the courage to do it. As insane as that sounds, suicide appears to some people a viable alternative to the pain. The pain is so great, so intolerable. The personal emptiness. I believe hell is not only going to be physically painful, but I think it is going to be incredibly personally painful. I believe that the people who are in hell right now are not only suffering physical pain, but I think they are suffering the most incredible emptiness ever, ever, ever imaginable. If you could possibly imagine your worst fear of being totally alone. Nobody around who cares. Totally cut off. And it's absolutely pitch black. Nothing to look forward to. No hope. No one to talk to. Despairing. And it, all it does is go on and on and on. And instead of getting better, it gets worse and worse. And you know what I think the worst part of it is? This is the most tragic part. That that person will be consciously aware. They will have a conscious awareness that there was a point back in time when they could have done something about it. That's the great tragedy. They'll be kicking themselves through all eternity in the midst of their suffering. It's like adding insult to injury, isn't it? I mean, hell is unimaginable. I mean, that's condemnation. The Bible says that all men are born condemned to hell, but God wants to save them. He's done something. He's done the only thing that could ever be done to save men. Paul describes it in this chapter. 
But beloved, for us to understand no condemnation and to really appreciate it and value it, you have to have some sense of what the condemnation is all about. I read a little anecdote about Calvin Coolidge, one of our presidents back in our history. When he was vice president of the United States, if you remember your civics lessons, the vice president is always president of the Senate. You remember that? Well, Calvin Coolidge was vice president of the nation. He was president of the Senate. And on one day when the Senate was in session, there was an argument going on on the Senate floor between two senators. And finally, one senator screamed across at the other senator, and he said, go to hell! Whereupon the other senator was shocked that that should be said, and it said to him. He rushed down to Coolidge's desk where he was sitting. Coolidge had a book open before him, and he was thumbing through the book. It was the rules of the Senate. The senator who was told to go to hell comes down to his desk, and he says, Did you hear what Senator so-and-so said to me? And Coolidge looked up from the book, and he says, Yes, I've searched the rules of the Senate, and no place here does it say, You have to go to hell. You don't have to go. <laughs> Beloved, if you are in Christ, you are uncondemnable. Hallelujah! You'll notice that in that first verse of chapter 8, it does not say that there is therefore now no cause for condemnation. It doesn't say that, does it? Is there cause for condemnation? If Christ were not interposed, if we were not in Christ, would there be condemnation? Oh, most certainly. Do Christians sin? Do they fall short? Absolutely. But because they are in Christ they are uncondemnable. Awesome truth. Awesome reality. Now Paul goes on in the next verse to give us some insight into why that's so. He tells us, because the spirit, the law of the spirit of life, now he makes it very personal here. This is the only place he uses the word me. The law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Oh, it's so real to him that he focuses on his own salvation. He says, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Notice the words he uses, the law. Law connotates authority, doesn't it? It connotates something that rules. The law of sin and death harkens back to the end of the seventh chapter. Question. Is there anything more final than death? Huh? No, there isn't, is there? Isn't death kind of a law? I mean, doesn't everybody die? I mean, you can't outsmart death, can you? People try, don't they? There's all kinds of gimmicks and things going on. People trying to finagle their way out of dying. There's all kinds of curious ways that people are trying to finagle their way out of the law of sin to try to make themselves better. I mean, there's all kinds of self-help seminars going on, aren't there, all over the country? I mean, I mean, just, I mean, Est, if there is such a thing still. There's a thing called Life Spring, I've heard. And there's, a, there's myriads of these things that just keep popping up, promoted by promoters who, you know, have a little bit of psychological training, some who have no training. 
and they're just cons. And they feed on people's insecurity and the reality of the law of sin. And they keep telling me, you know, you can think yourself better. Five for $500, right. <laughs> you can think yourself better. But Paul says in the seventh chapter, the end of the seventh chapter, that there's the law of his mind at war with the law of sin, and the law of sin keeps winning, making him a what? A prisoner of the law of sin at work in his members. The law of sin and the law of death. They're realities that we have to deal with. And you know the only avenue to freedom is what? The law of the spirit of life. The Holy Spirit is the only means whereby we are delivered from the law of sin and death. And we've got thousands of scientists today devoted to studying the brain, to figuring out how it works, to figuring out how we can increase both the quality and the quantity of life. They lament the fact that man uses only a maximum of 10% of his brain capacity. 90% of the brain is unused. Oh, if we could just tap into that other 90%. And they're feverishly working. Now, I'm not against research. I think it's wonderful. But they need to read the seventh chapter of Romans. They need to read about the law of sin and death. You see, they're naively believing that if they can just get to the other 90%, that man can somehow be greater. Really, the ultimate thing is they're looking for the fountain of youth to preserve man's life, stop death and aging. The law of sin and death, the only thing that will come against it is the law of the spirit of life. God's spirit intervening in someone's life to break the reign of sin and to break the reign and the rule of death in that person's life. You with me? The law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Look at verses 3 and 4. He's going to begin to describe life in the spirit. Now, if you're born again, if you're a Christian, very important. You must see the effects of the spirit of God working in your life. And Paul is going to spell these things out in this passage. In verse 3, he says, now look it. The law was powerless. He says, for what the law was powerless to do. Now, we've been talking about that for a couple weeks. What was the law powerless to do? Powerless to save us, right? Think with me about the law. Think of the law of God, the moral law, as a mirror. Can you picture that? If you have a dirty face, you don't, have a, you don't know you have a dirty face until you what? Look into the mirror. You look into the mirror and you say, aha, I have a dirty face. Immediately you unhook the mirror from the wall and you begin to scrub your face with the mirror. That's ludicrous, isn't it? No one does that. Because you know the mirror can't clean your face. It can just spread the dirt around. The law is like a mirror. You don't unhook the law and try to clean yourself with it. It can't make us better. All the law is, is given to us to reflect our condition. We've talked about that. We must go someplace else. That someplace else is to Christ. And through the Spirit of Christ, we're washed. We're regenerated. 
So for what the law could not do, as the second element here, because it was what? Weakened through what? What's he say? Through or by the sinful nature. Man can't save himself. Man has a terrible dilemma on his hands. It's called sin. And it infects every aspect of his life, every aspect of his being, every aspect of his environment, every kind of relationship. Man's major problem and dilemma is sin, and out of that comes every problem that he has. The law can't do anything about it. Man's weakened nature can't do anything about it. He's helpless. What the law could not do, what man couldn't do for himself, Paul writes, God did. Isn't that glorious? Here's man helpless, wallowing around. If you go back into the fifth chapter, Paul says, God did it when men were still his enemies. When we could care less about God. God reached down and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And what did he do? He says he sent his son. I mean, it is so simple, isn't it? Jesus Christ, God's son, came to earth, took on flesh, died on the cross, was buried and raised from the dead. Simple gospel. But the implications of all of that, the reason for it all, are overwhelming. God sent his son. In the, hu- in the likeness of of sinful man. He, had, he put on flesh. Paul writes over in Philippians chapter 2 that, that Jesus, being fully God, did not jealously guard that, but he set aside his glory. And he came down here, he put on flesh, put on the likeness of a human being, and lived amongst us. And then ultimately was obedient to the cross. And the likeness of human flesh. God intervened and he brought the only possible solution to man that could ever solve his problem was in Christ. A watershed event in human history. Jesus Christ. God intervened. And did for man what he could not do for himself. Listen to this. Verse 7, And so he condemned sin in sinful man. Sin was condemned in sinful man, but it was carried out in the body of Christ. That's why he had to be a man. So that that condemnation of sin, that dealing with sin, could be done in the context of humanity. It couldn't be done outside of humanity. That's why God had to become a man, a perfect man. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Let me talk to you for a moment about the righteous requirements of the law. There's two aspects here. The first aspect is this. Did Jesus keep the law perfectly? Did he? Did he violate the law at any point? No. He kept the law perfectly. In keeping the law perfectly, did he deserve to die? No. But he died anyway. 
he kept the full requirement of the law, both in its obedience and in its penalty. He fulfilled the law perfectly. Now, let me ask you this. I want you to think about this. If he kept the law perfectly, and I am in him, what does that say for me? I've kept the law perfectly. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing. In Christ, the the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us. Because why? I am in Christ. Do you follow that? Now, there's a second element to this. It's not only that I'm in Christ and the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in me, but also I've been freed from the law of sin so that I, guess what? I might now actually keep the law so that I might practically be righteous, not just positionally righteous, that I might actually practically obey God. Isn't that astounding? We can obey God now. Isn't that glorious? Listen to, what, listen to what Paul writes elsewhere. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, listen to these words. We are God's workmanship. He's remade us. God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for this purpose, to do good works. Walking in the Spirit, life in the Spirit, always leads to obedience. Let me say that again. Life in the Spirit always leads to obedience. Listen to what he says in Titus, chapter 2, verse 14. talks about us as being a people redeemed, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Are we eager to do what's good? Because if you're eager to do what's good, that's an evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in your life. Isn't that nice? Verses 5 through 11 talk about two kinds of people. Let me describe these two kinds of people to you. God does not discriminate on the basis of sex. He does not discriminate on the basis of age. He does not discriminate on the basis of socioeconomic status. He does not discriminate on the basis of education. He discriminates on one basis and one basis only. If you're a goat or a sheep. Matthew chapter 25, read it. It's very instructive. He says there are two kinds of people. There are those who live according to the sinful nature and those who live according to the spirit. Very simple. And he's going to spell out for us the differences between those kind of people. And this is important for us to meditate on and to understand so that we can evaluate where we stand. I am convinced that there are lots and lots of people in the church today who believe that they're Christians, who are not Christians, in the true sense of that word. There are lots and lots of people who are living under an illusion because they go to church, because they throw a few bucks in the bucket when it goes by, because they do a few nice things, that makes them a Christian. Not at all. Not at all. And Paul's going to spell it out here. The evidence and the proof that a person is a Christian is that the Holy Spirit of God lives in them, and the Holy Spirit of God is changing their life 
and they are walking after that spirit. Look with me at these verses. He says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Let's talk about that for a moment. There are three elements that are described in those passages. There is a nature that's set forth. He talks first about the sinful nature. There's a mindset that derives from that nature. And then thirdly, there's a behavior that we arrive at after the mindset. Do you follow that? Nature gives rise to a way of thinking, gives rise to behavior. Behavior always comes out of the way we think. What are the things, do you suppose, that the sinful nature desires? What things would those be? You suppose they would be the passing things? The useless things? The inconsequential things of this life, really speaking? The things that are just going to pass away? Things that you could really determine and you could classify as the garbage of this world? The things that really are useless to the kingdom of God? Do you have a sense of what the things are that the sinful nature desires? Now let's, let me ask you this question. What are the things that the Spirit desires, do you suppose? Do you suppose that the Spirit would desire that we involve ourselves in things that promote the kingdom of God? Absolutely. What are some of those things? Well, you suppose the Bible would be one of those things? Do you think that the Spirit of God would desire us to study this book? I think so. Spend time here, right? Do you think that the Spirit of God would desire that we praise and worship the Lord? Absolutely. Sing to Him? Yes. Do you think that the Spirit of God would desire that we give our money to the kingdom? Yes. Do you think that the Spirit of God would desire that we enter into fellowship with one another regularly? Yes. Do you think that the Spirit of God would long for us to know the deep things of God? Yes. <coughs> Excuse me. Do you think... Let me ask you this question. I was listening recently to a conversation between an American pastor and a Korean pastor. They were talking about the American church. And the Korean pastor was remarking how incredible the American church is in terms of a number of things. He said, you have the best seminaries, you have the best trained, the best educated, the most eloquent, you have the greatest biblical expositors and teachers in the history of the world in America. He said, you have the greatest number of churches in America. He said, you have the most generous people in America. They give more money. The American church is wealthier than any other church, any other nation in the world. He said, one thing the American church lacks. Can you think what that one thing is? Huh? No? Steve, can you think what that one thing is? No? Prayer. He says, the American church has all these things, and yet it is ineffective. He said, your prisons are overflowing. 
Your homes are being torn apart. Marriages are going down the tubes. Disease is rampant. Immorality, abortion. Your whole society is coming apart. The fabric is being destroyed. He said the one thing the American church lacks is this. They will not pray. They will not pray. I have to say, he has something to say there, doesn't he? Do you suppose the Spirit of God would desire that the people pray? Do you remember 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14? Classic verse. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and give more money. Is that what it says? No. It's easy to give money, isn't it? If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and erect erect bigger seminaries, train more preachers. If my people, who are called by my name, would put up more Christian satellites, (laughs) open more Christian TV stations. No, what is the word? If my people who are called by my name, will what? Humble themselves and pray, I will what? Heal their land. Whoa. You suppose the Spirit of God would desire that we pray? Absolutely. Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Who did he take with him? He said Peter, James, and John, his three closest trusted friends, right? The three top-notch disciples. These guys were his chosen hand-picked three. He says, come away with me and pray. I'm going to go off to the side here and I'm going to pray. Would you pray with me what? Remember what he said? One hour. That's the minimum. Just wait with me one hour. One hour. He comes back. What are they doing? Beloved, I submit to you, the American church is asleep. I submit to you, this church is asleep. Let me say that again. I submit to you, this church is asleep. How many hours do you pray a day? Yes, you heard me right. Hours a day. How many hours a day do you pray? Hours, what's he talking about? Well, I pray. I pray pray on on my way to work, and on my way back from work, and, and when I'm in the car alone, and Most of you don't pray very long because you don't have very far to go to work. How many hours a day? Jesus seemed to set the minimum at one. One hour. Prayer. What are the things that our minds are set on? What are the things that our minds are set on? What are the important things? Where do we spend our time? Prayer? Prayer seems to be the very thing that God holds up the most. Prayer. Where's the mindset? Where's the mindset? Not just a matter of priorities, it's a matter of mindset. 
Does that make sense? You suppose the Spirit of God would desire that we pray? Absolutely. Absolutely. Pray, beloved. Pray and obey. Pray and obey. Pray and obey. Would you agree? Look what he says. Verse 7, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It's absolutely antagonistic to God. The mind that is not controlled by the Spirit is antagonistic to God. He goes on and explains why. He says in the next verse, it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Look back up at verse 6. He says the mind of sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. I did a funeral not too long ago. Tragic. Tear your heart right out. You'd witness what I saw. Here was a mother standing by the casket of her child. Young woman. Died. The prime of her youth. Beautiful person. The mother reaches into the casket grabs the body and pulls it out and holds it to her breast and cries and screams and talks to the corpse. The corpse did not talk back. It was dead. That's the condition of man. Dead. Dead to the things of God. Dead to spiritual things. The mind, Paul says, the sinful mind is death. Totally incommunicado. It's hostile to God. It's antagonistic to God. It cannot please God. I want to read you a passage out of Isaiah chapter 59. Let me just read it to you. He says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor the ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. So he will not hear. He's talking about unredeemed man. People come up to me Friday night after service, they say, you mean, you mean God doesn't hear the prayers of people who are not saved? That's right. They can pray all day and all night, and God does not hear those prayers. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Do you mean that all the good things that people who don't profess to be Christians, all those good things don't please God? No. That's hard to take. What about the great people who do great humanitarian things for mankind? They don't please God? No. You know why? Because those things aren't truly good. And you know why they're not truly good? They're not truly good because they're not done for the glory of God. And they're not done for the glory of God because it's impossible for those people to do those things for the glory of God. Isaiah, the great prophet, said, Your righteousness is as filthy rags. Beloved, if you peel the veneer of altruism away from the face of those good people, you'll see a gigantic ego. If you and I, or any human being, 
does not do what we do for the glory of God, whose glory do we do it for? People, it's very subtle. We do things, we, have, we are driven to do things, we are driven to make an impact so that we feel significant, so that we have contributed, so that we're important. That's why we do things, that's the motivation. It's ego-driven. And there's a lot of Christians doing stuff, they're not doing it to the glory of God. They're doing it for their own ego gratification. What we do, we must do for the glory of God. We can only please God if the Spirit of God dwells in us. I received a phone call this last week from a lady in our church, infuriated, absolutely coming apart at the scenes over the phone. She says, I've had it. I said, what's the matter? She says, I'm leaving this husband. I said, you're what? I said, why are you calling me and telling me? She said, I've had it. I'm leaving. Now I know them. I've talked with them. Four, they are hurting people. They are parasitic on one another. They look for the other person to meet their needs. They do not look to meet the other person's needs. They're always looking for what they can get out of the deal. That's the paramount thought. And she said to me, she says, I'm leaving. I've had it. I'm getting a divorce this guy can go shove it for all I care. I mean, that's a direct quote. I said to her, let me ask you a question. She says, what? <laughs> and she was hot, let me tell you. I said, are you a Christian? Oh. Hated that question. Yes, I'm a Christian. I said, wonderful. <laughs> I'm glad we've established that. Now listen, if you're a Christian, there's one important understanding you must have is that you're in that marriage for the sake of God's glory, not your own. She says, what are you talking about? I said, you're in that marriage for God's glory. I said, you go into that marriage and you love that man. You pray for that man. You serve that man. He's unreasonable. I said, even if he's unreasonable. I said, do you have your Bible handy? He says, yes. <laughs> I said, open it. Open it to the 12th chapter of Romans. We read on down in Romans. We came to the passage where Paul writes, if your enemy is hungry, what should you do? If your enemy is thirsty, what should you do? That's talking about your enemy, not even your spouse. <laughs> and then here comes the classic question what about my rights don't I have any rights don't ever ask me that question because <laughs> I'll tell you the answer right now no no I said you have the privilege of serving Christ in that marriage as you serve that man, as you wash his feet. You have the privilege of glorifying your Father in heaven. He sent Christ to the cross for you. And the least you could do 
is lay your life down. Not be a martyr, but to with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, all your strength, serve Christ in this marriage. Amen? If you're born again, please God. Do what you do for His glory. The person who is not born again, who does not have the Spirit of God living in him, cannot please God. I don't care what you think. That's objective reality. Cannot please God. Go on to live in a rebellious lifestyle. Look at verse 10. Verse 9, he says, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. If the Spirit of God lives in you, you're controlled by the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't feel controlled by the Holy Spirit. Let's put it in perspective. Is the Holy Spirit God? Yes. Is God in control of everything? Yes. Is there anything out of control, of his span of control? No. If the Holy Spirit is in you, he's in control. He's going to have his way one way or another. Paul says in the fifth chapter of Galatians, after he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he says, you know, the Spirit is living in you. It would make sense to walk after the Spirit. Wouldn't it? Certainly. He says, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. I don't know how clear you can get. You've got to have the Holy Spirit living in you. And the way you know the Holy Spirit's living in you is that something has changed in your life dramatically. You have a whole new mindset. You have a whole new bent and direction to your life. He says, and if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he says, there's even great hope. He says, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. You mean I'm going to get a new body? Yes. These bodies are bodies of death. These bodies are passing away. They're frail. They get uglier and uglier, fatter and fatter, weaker and weaker. Hair falls out, wrinkles appear. All manner of things happen to this body. It's passing away. Why? Because of sin. But if the Spirit of God is there, the Spirit of God is going to give life to these mortal bodies. Do you, do you, do you know what it means to drag this body around through this life? We really do, don't we? We drag this body around through this life. We're not going to have to drag it around in heaven. We can't even drag it to heaven. It's going to be left here. You're laying there in the morning, the alarm goes off, you set it two hours early, you have all the greatest intentions of getting up to pray for two hours. The alarm goes off, and this old body says what? Let's stay here. <laughs> the spirit says, no, come on. The body says, no. And you've got to drag it out of bed. 
don't you? Oh, yeah. You got to drag it every place you go. But, beloved, we don't have to drag it to heaven. This body would contaminate heaven. This body would come apart molecule by molecule in heaven. It's not built for heaven. We need a new one. And it's the Spirit of God who's going to give us a new one if the Spirit of God is dwelling in you. Beloved, there's going to day come when you and I are going to be totally new on the outside, just like we're totally new on the inside. We are going to be completely, perfectly, wonderfully, incorruptible, outside and inside, to the glory of God. Why? Because the Spirit of God lives in us. Because when I believed, I received God's Spirit, and He is changing my life. Walking in the Spirit means obedience. Let's pray. Father, drill these realities home to us. Shake us to our core. Holy Spirit, break our hearts. Reveal to us the mindset in us. Whether our mind is set on the things the sinful nature desires or whether our mind is set on the things the Spirit desires. Lord, show us. Cause us to empty ourselves of all foolishness, Lord, that we might indeed bring you glory that we might know the fullness of what you have for us. Lord, strengthen us, I pray. You put your life in us. You put your spirit in us. Fill us now, Lord, with your spirit. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for a moment. There are some here this morning, probably, who... You found yourself here today and you found yourself hearing some things that are maybe a little disturbing to you. You can't escape them. You've got to deal with them. If you've known about Jesus but you've not known him personally, he's alive. He was raised from the dead. He died for you. You have a dilemma. You have a problem on your hand. It's called sin. He's paid the price for that sin. He's paid the penalty. And that payment will become effective for you the moment you bow your knee and you say, Jesus, I'm yours. Save me. As you sit here this morning, I know that there's a a strong witness inside your heart telling you, yes, but your flesh is resisting. I want to invite you now to make a decision to give your life to Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh. He wants to bring you in and give you life. He wants to save you from condemnation, from hell. He's already done a work in your life, and he's prepared you for this. The decision is up to you now. Now, if you're willing to take a step of faith, if you're willing to reach out, it's going to require that you humble yourself. I'd like to lead you in a short prayer. The words of the prayer aren't so significant as where your heart is. God looks into your heart. I'll pray a prayer, and you pray along with me after, after me. 
that you make it real in your heart. But I need to know if, in fact, there is anybody that wants to pray, that they've come to grips with the reality of their dilemma, and they see that Jesus Christ is the solution, and you want the Spirit of God in your life to change you, transform you, save you. If you want to make that decision while everybody else's heads are bowed and eyes are closed, you just look up at me. As our eyes meet, that's the signal. You say, yes, I'm asking Jesus into my heart, and then I'll pray with you. Anybody at all, just look up right now. Is that why you're looking up? Good. Praise God. Welcome to the family. Anybody else? Is that why you're looking up? You want to pray? Ask Jesus into your heart? Is that why you're looking at? Good. All right. 